How is everybody? Okay. Everyone's still asleep. It's cool. It's cool. Hey, if you've been with us uh, for any length of time, we've been covering the Gospel of John. I think I've been saying six months, but I think it's been even longer than that. It was uh, last fall, like September or October, we started this book of the Bible. So we've been in it for, for quite a while, and um, we're going to be wrapping it up today. So what's kind of neat, if you're new to the church, it's some, at least I think it's neat, you know, that we do here, is we go through whole books of the Bible. So if you come for any length of time, um, here's what we're going to do. The next book of the Bible we're going to do is we're going to do the book of Ruth, which I've never taught before. It's going to be fun, right? I'm going to do uh, about a month of Ruth. We're going to do a little series that we typically do in the summer, a different kind of series. And uh, you're going to get to hear Corey Drake teach up here pretty soon, uh, which is going to be fun. And uh, going to do a series. And then in the fall, we're going to go into the book of Acts. Um, but here's what's neat is if you stick with us for a while, right, this is, this is my, uh, my try to hook you in and keep you, to, keep you coming to church here for a while, is that if you stay here for a while, you will literally go through an entire book of the Bible with us. And if you pay attention, especially if you keep the notes and if you're, you're regularly attending, you come out with a pretty good working knowledge of different books of the Bible. So if you've been coming here for the last six or eight months, um, you should be quite the scholar in the Gospel of John, right? And uh, if you ever need the notes or if you ever need to go back and look at what we've taught, you can go back and find all that online or we'll send you the notes or, or whatever you need to help us uh, or, or to help you. But last week, we didn't miss a beat, right? Even though it was resurrection weekend, we continued on and it happened that the Gospel of John fell perfectly and we were in chapter 20 and so we talked about after Jesus was crucified, he was resurrected from the grave. He brought himself back to life. And in the Gospel of Luke, that also tells this story, we talked about this question that these angels asked Mary Magdalene. Mary was the first one to see that Jesus Christ had been resurrected, right? And these angels ask her a question. They say, why do you keep looking for life among the dead? And so we talked about last week that we have a tendency, all of us, everyone in the room, we have a tendency to want to find contentment and hope and happiness in things that aren't going to live forever. Even sometimes good things like our marriage or our job or our success or even things like that. Though those aren't always bad things, those things are going to pass away. So the only thing that lives forever, right, is our relationship with the Lord. And so we need to make sure we find contentment in life, in Jesus, not in things that are going to eventually pass away, okay? This week, we're going to talk about this. As we wrap up the Gospel of John, you would have heard every single word of the Gospel of John if you've been coming every Sunday or every, or every uh, weekend for the past six or seven months. As we wrap this up, we're going to talk about this. We're going to wrap up that Jesus is the God of the past, He is the God of right now, the present, and He is also the God of eternity, of the future, we're going to kind of wrap up the gospel in a nice, neat package, hopefully, by the end of uh, the lesson today, okay? Let me tell you a funny story, though, real quick. I told it at the five, and then I forgot at the seven, but it's, it's worth telling, but um, I want to make sure I remember it. So there's a, because uh, we're talking about the past at the end of, of, of the sermon yesterday at the five, um, there's a young lady, I, I, she's my age, so I consider her young. There's a young lady <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> young lady that started coming to this church a couple of years ago. And um, apparently I knew her in college, and I don't remember that, which points to how bad I was in my college years. But uh, she started coming to church here a couple of years ago when we were on the other side. And she was sitting in the back of the room with a friend that she was coming with, you know, for the first time. And uh, I walked by her, right? And the friend had been coming to church here for a while. But I walked by this young lady, 
And she leans over to her friend and she goes, I knew that dude in college. It's really good that he's coming to church. If anyone needs Jesus, it's that guy. <laughs> and so I, I walked by and I wish I could have seen her face when I got up on the stage and like opened up my Bible, right, to teach. Uh, but she told me this story later on, but it's just interesting how, how good God is to us, right? That we can get past that, you know. <laughs> I won't tell you who that was, uh, Rachel Nadal, but anyways, let's, uh, <laughs> let's get into the lesson, right? <laughs> let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, we thank you so much, Lord, for everything you've done for us. Lord, on a serious note, God, you deliver us of our pasts, and we are so grateful for that. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. God, I pray that you open up our eyes today, open up our ears. Lord, help us to be vulnerable, help us to be genuine, Help us to be honest with ourselves and, of course, with you. Father, we pray for every single church in our community. God, we want to thank you for a packed house last week, and we want to thank you, Lord, that you packed out churches all over the city last week, God. And we pray, Lord, that we continue to grow and that more people know who you are, God. Lord, we pray that you keep your hand on us today. God, we thank you. We love you. We lift you up. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys should have got a notes handout when you walked in. It has virtually everything I'm going to say in there. I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 21, and we'll go back and we'll break it down to the best of my abilities. Okay, so here's where we are in the story. Jesus has resurrected. He came back, and he has revealed himself two times at this point to his disciples. He showed up. Their doors were locked. He said, hey, you know, peace to you. I've resurrected. They didn't believe it at first, but then they saw him. They saw the hands, the side, where the piercings were, where he was killed. They believed it was Jesus. The second time he shows up, he targets a guy named Thomas and says, here, I think you needed to see this because he was doubting Thomas, right? And so now the disciples have seen him resurrected. They've seen him twice now, okay? Now here's where we pick up. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two others of the disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him, and they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Men, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Okay, so here's what's going on. Seven of the 11 disciples wanted to go out and just hang out. This isn't like a huge monumental event. This isn't anything deeply theological. They just wanted to go out and fish. There was a bunch of guys that enjoyed fishing. In fact, most of these guys were professional fishermen, kind of in their past lives before they knew Jesus. Peter goes, hey, I got a boat. I'm going to go out and fish. I'm a little stressed. You guys want to go, you know, come with? And they were like, yeah, let's go fishing, right? So at this point, Peter has kind of emerged as the leader, kind of the unspoken leader. Jesus intended for him to lead the disciples when he was gone, but he's kind of stepping up into that role. He's more than likely the oldest. He owns this boat, right? And he takes them out. And he's kind of becoming that big brother to the rest of the disciples. So John mentions this story of a very unsuccessful fishing trip, right? 
he tells this futile fishing trip for a couple of reasons. One, the futile fishing trip is going to set up something miraculous that Jesus does. The other reason why John includes the fishing trip is the fishing trip is a good example of, the, of, of what Jesus was trying to teach them the whole time that he was with them, that he's not going to keep them fishers of fish, right? He's going to make them into fishers of men. He says to the disciples, you guys know how to go out and catch fish. I'm going to teach you how to go out and capture hearts, right? Capture souls, capture the lives of these people for me. And so what we see, fishing was a pretty mundane thing to most of these guys. They'd been doing it a lot. And I think the reason why John mentions something as as small as an unsuccessful fishing trip is because we often see miraculous things happen in the mundane. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever just been like driving down the road and you like look over and like the clouds part a little bit and the sun shines down and like it becomes real again? You guys know what I'm talking about or am I the only weirdo like that? It's in the little things in life. When you're working on the yard and you look over and you see your daughter playing, right? Or like dancing around and you're like, okay, life is worth living, right? This is miraculous. This is something wonderful. And maybe sometimes I think things like this are mentioned in the Bible to help us remember to not look over the small things to not forget the simple things in life, like fishing with your buddies, right? The small things. Okay, so like I said earlier, they had already seen Jesus twice. They'd seen the Lord two times. And even though they had seen him twice, as he was on the beach when they were fishing, they didn't recognize him. Now, this isn't anything mystical. This isn't anything supernatural. Here's the thing. They were about 100 yards away from the shore. We know that because it says it here in a second. They're about a football field away from the shore. It was dark, and there was probably a mist on the water. So they could see a guy on the shore, but you couldn't really make out many features, right? So there wasn't anything uh, supernatural. We shouldn't look too much into that. But the man on the shore looks at the professional fisherman, and he says, hey, you guys haven't caught anything, have you? And they're like, well, no. And Jesus knew that they hadn't caught anything. We see this a lot in the Gospels. Jesus asks us questions a lot that he already knows the answer to but we see it right here. He knew that they hadn't caught anything. So to the, to the guys on the boat, some random dude who's walking on the beach is going to give professional fishermen some advice on how to fish. So they take it, right? Because they haven't caught anything. And the chances are that they had tried to catch fish all over the place, both sides of the boat, you know, hundreds of times probably, but to no avail. But he says, throw it on the right-hand side. Ah, oh, what the heck? Let's throw it out one more time. So they throw it out on the right-hand side, and they catch somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 pounds of fish. How do you know that, Corey? Because I'm a big dork and I study things like this. So if you go back and research the kinds of nets that fishermen would have used in this time, they could roughly pull in about 300 pounds of fish without breaking. And we see here in a second, this, this, this net was kind of at its limit. Okay, so here's what we see. Here's the big principle in this so far. Now, something miraculous happened in the fact that they caught all these fish and they hadn't all night. Now, here's the thing, because again, I'm a dork and I think like this. Did Jesus make all the fish appear? Like, you know, in his brain, think of fish and there's a bunch of fish that appear and then they catch them? Or was he just using the fact that he knows everything and knew that there would be a lot of fish on this side of the boat at that particular moment? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The point is this. Jesus gave an instruction, the men followed his direction, and they achieved more than they ever could have imagined. That's the point. The point is this. 
that without obedience to Christ, we are incapable of reaching the potential that we're supposed to reach. That is the point. God will shock you and I with how much he can do with us if we will simply be obedient. All right, next part. Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, let me, let me pause there. If I wrote a book of the Bible, I would also refer to myself as the one Jesus loved. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> John, right? <laughs> Therefore, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped, and he plunged into the sea. But since they were not far away from land, about a hundred yards, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire here and uh, fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So after they haul in this huge 300 pound net of fish, John's probably like, who is this guy on the shore? Takes a closer look, and he says, Peter, it's Jesus. And so the two men responded just like you would expect them to respond if you've been with us for the Gospel of John. John just kind of speaks it, right? It's Jesus. Peter wraps something around him, jumps into the water without even thinking about it, and he's gonna swim to shore to see Jesus, right? 100 yards, that's a long way to swim for this guy, right? But he hops in and he swims 100 yards. So some, pe some people think Peter was naked because it says he was stripped. Now, in this culture, they didn't just go around fishing naked. It was much like our culture. Maybe some people do that. But just like in our culture, if a bunch of dudes were going out on the lake to fish, you're going to be comfortable. So he was probably just wearing some, something around his loins, probably had his shirt off. He was comfortable because he's out there just fishing with his buddies. But more than likely, he was not fishing nude, right? So why did he tie something around himself before he got into the water. Now, culture has changed a lot. In this day and age, it was rude to greet people when not fully clothed. So the reason why Peter put on more clothes before he jumped into the water is it was an improper thing to, to greet someone when you were immodest. So Peter couldn't get fully clothed before he jumped into the water and swam, so he did the best he could in an awkward situation, right? It's like when someone knocks on the door, and you're walking around in your underwear, your robe, you like throw something on real quick, right? And answer the door. It was kind of like that. So Peter did the best he could, got as clothed as he could, and took off towards Jesus. That's what he did, right? So this must have been a pretty awesome morning. <laughs> the disciples are fishing. They just catch probably the biggest load of fish that they've ever caught. They haul it on board, and they get to go to the beach and eat breakfast with Jesus. This, might, this must have been probably one of the most peaceful calm times that the disciples had experienced in maybe years, right? So they sit there and they eat with Jesus. Now we see that eating together in groups is a very Christian thing. I know that sounds silly, 
But there's a reason why Christians love to go to coffee shops and meet with people and have people over for dinner and go out to eat and maybe buy other people's dinner. It's a big deal because God is communal. We see that with Jesus. Jesus loved eating with his friends. The Last Supper, it's breakfast on the beach that he made, right? Look at that. They get there and he's already made breakfast for them, made a little fire. He's got some fish, got some bread, gives it to them. It's a big deal. So last week, last week when we talked about church briefly, I probably upset some people, but I talked about the importance of this. This is important. Why? Because God is all about community. And when we become Christians, we should be all about community. We need this. This is important. And we see that with Jesus. So it's fascinating to me that the God of the universe, who came as a human, died for our sins and resurrected, still takes on the role of servant. As they get on the beach, he's already making them breakfast. Not only does he make them breakfast, but he serves them breakfast. Hey, bring some fish over here. Let me serve this to you. Let me cook this for you. That shows us that when we become followers of Jesus, we have dedicated ourselves to a life of servitude. Now, I should have made this hot pink and a bigger font. But when we find ourselves feeling entitled, we need to repent because we're not acting like Jesus. Whenever we start feeling that people owe us something, that is not the Christian mind frame, and we should ask for forgiveness of that. Next part. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Okay. So as they're eating breakfast on the beach, right? They've wrapped up breakfast. Maybe the other disciples are playing beach volleyball or whatever they're doing. And, Je and Jesus gets alone with Peter, okay? So after breakfast, Jesus takes the time to kind of get Peter one-on-one. -on -one. And the purpose of this conversation with just Peter is Jesus wants to restore Peter back to ministry. He wants to tell him that his job is not finished and he wants to give him the opportunity to be redeemed. Now, here's the thing. Peter had probably had multiple thoughts. He had probably been tempted after the crucifixion and after even the resurrection. Peter probably was tempted to go back to his old way of life. He was a successful business owner. It would have been easier. It would have been more lucrative. It would have been a lot safer. I mean, look what happened to Jesus, right? It would have been a lot safer and easier to just go back to the way he used to be. And so Jesus was gonna put him right back on the track he needed to be on. So, Jesus asks Peter the same question three times. There's a little bit of a difference. If you go back and study this, uh, it's kind of lost on us a little bit. Love, there's multiple ways of saying love in the Greek, and it changes throughout these questions, okay? But I'm not going to go into that part of it. So, three times, he looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me more than anything else? And the reason why he asks this is if you weren't with us, Peter had denied Jesus three times. So Jesus is gonna give him the opportunity to be redeemed three times. 
So after the response, right, that Peter answers, Jesus also gives a response. And the first time he says, feed my lambs. The second time he says, shepherd my sheep. And the third time he says, feed my sheep. Now, not only is Peter being restored, Peter is also being instructed on how to be a Christian leader. What Jesus is showing him in his responses is he is showing him the Great Commission. Now, if you've never heard of the Great Commission, it's in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Maybe one of the most important scriptures in the entire Bible. It says, go therefore to all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've told you and making disciples of them. That's what Jesus told his followers to do. So Peter was instructed by Jesus, if you look at Jesus's responses, to lead people from being lambs, spiritual babies, into dedicated followers of Jesus, sheep, right, grown up, and then to groom them even more, to feed them so they can then go out and be servants. So it wasn't just restoring Peter. Jesus was saying, I want you to go out and bring people up from spiritual babies into what you are so they can go out and they can spread the gospel as well. And so what we see is this. All of you in this room who feel like you're called to be a leader in any form or fashion, true leadership is being a servant. And Jesus keeps referring to Peter as Simon. Go back and look at your Bible. He doesn't call him Peter. He keeps calling him Simon. The reason why is this. Simon, has, had, a, Simon had his name changed to Peter by Jesus because the word Simon means grass-like, something that blows around in the wind, something that's not very strong or sturdy. Jesus changed his name to Peter to show what he could be if he would follow him, a rock, something that, that things could be built upon. That's what he changed his name to. So when he kept calling him Simon, he was referring back to Peter's humble beginnings. He was essentially saying to Peter, don't forget where you came from. As you become the head of the church, as you became one of the most uh, influential leaders of the Christian movement, do not forget your humble beginnings. Though you're the leader, it doesn't mean that you're superior to those you are leading. What Jesus wants out of us, if you're a leader in this room or feel called to that, is he wants humility and he wants you to work your butt off. That's what he wants out of true leaders, humility and hard work. That's what he wants. So the third time that Jesus looks at Peter and asks him this question, by the third time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, it registered. And it says that he was grieved because it hit. The reason he's asking me three times is because I denied him three times. So the third time, Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus's goal is not to make us feel bad. His goal is not to shame us. How do we know that? Because it says earlier in the Gospel of John, he didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us from condemnation. And the only way to save us from shame and to save us from guilt and to save us from condemnation is we must ask for repentance of our sins. And so what Jesus wants to do is get us to a place to where we, are, we acknowledge that we are wrong and we acknowledge that we need him. And if we reach that place, we can be restored. We can be put back together. We can be the rock that God wants us all to be. Okay, next part. This is where it gets heavy. He says, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands 
and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. That disciple was the one that leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? That's John, right? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this report spread to the brothers that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus didn't tell him he wouldn't die. But if I want to remain until I come, what is it to you? Now, this is an interesting part. Look at this. After they get done talking, sitting down, Jesus says, Peter, walk with me. So they start walking down the beach. And after Jesus restores Peter, right, gives him the opportunity to kind of be redeemed, he looks at him and he tells him about his future. Now, Peter was brash. He was very vocal, right? He was a business owner and a very successful one. He was independent. And Jesus said, that's going to go away. Eventually, you're going to become a prisoner. You're going to become dependent not only on him, but you're going to become dependent on the benevolence of others so you can eat and have a place to stay. And then Jesus even says, you're eventually going to be killed. And you're going to be violently killed. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're about to go through some serious crap. You're about to be violently and brutally murdered for my sake. Follow me. Can you imagine the guts it took for Peter to say, okay, right? Only God can look at us and say, I'm about to put you through the ringer, but trust me, follow me. And Peter does. So he goes into the details of what kind of death Peter was going to die. I don't know if you guys know this or not. Peter was crucified as well in Rome. I think it was under Caesar Nero, if I'm not mistaken, who also killed the Apostle Paul. But Peter died at a fairly young age. He was in his late 50s, early 60s, crucified up, upside down. The reason why he was crucified upside down is Peter didn't see it fit to be crucified exactly the way Jesus was. So they killed him upside down. And so Jesus told him that this was going to happen. He said, when you were young, you could do whatever you wanted to do. But now that you follow me, people are going to take you to places you don't want to go. They're going to do things to you that you don't want them to do to you. And that was to signify what kind of death he was going to die. So as they're walking, look at this. As they're walking, Peter realizes that John is kind of tagging along, right? And so Peter does what a lot of us do, still do. Peter goes, well, what about him? I'm going to die this kind of death. What about John? And what he's doing right there is he's showing his humanity, right? He's being selfish and he's being jealous. And we've all done this. When things happen to us or things happen at work or, or, or at school, or if God asks us to do something else, we tend to say, well, well, what about them, right? Why me? Why do I have to go through this and they get off the hook? Here's the thing about being a Christian though. When we are filled with God's spirit, we are to become selfless, not selfish. That's the difference. We're not like the world that says, well, what about them? Look at all they have. Why don't I have that? Again, that is not the mind frame of the Christian. Why? Because covetousness Envy and jealousy are sins. How do we know that? Because it's one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is that we should not look at what other people have and want what they have and be jealous of that. And we live in a culture 
We live in a culture that says, how dare they be successful? They should have to sell their belongings and give, the, give it to me. That's the culture we live in. How dare I? I shouldn't have to pay for my own college. You should have to pay for that. If you want to get me on a rant, guys, this guy worked 40 hours a week for five years paying for his own school. And whenever you tell me that government funds have to pay for your, your college, that makes me mad because I've already had to pay for my own. I don't have to pay for yours too. I'm trying to pay for my two little girls when they grow up. And this covetous world that we live in that says, because you have these things and I don't, that is a sin because God said it was a sin. And we need to move away from that. Here's the thing. When we are focused on what others have and what others are doing and how we compare to them, we will be robbed of what God wants for us. We need to be focused on us. How do we know this? Because Jesus says to Peter, what I do with John is none of your business. As for you, follow me. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to John right now. So this is how division begins. This is how the fracture and the concrete starts. Because of our envy, because of our jealousy, look at what happened. A rumor started about John that John was never going to die. That's what happened. That's what John wrote. There was a rumor around Christianity. Oh, well, Jesus loved John so much that he's not even going to die. And John said, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that if I want him to live forever, he will, but it's none of your concern. John died. He died in his 90s, and he was boiled alive and thrown onto an island before he died. John didn't get off scot-free. But what we see is this. The Bible is crystal clear. 1 Corinthians 6, I think it's verse 9, says that gossipers are in the same category as haters of God. Gossipers, slanderers, people who talk bad about others, that is a sin. And it requires repentance. And all of this begins when we start looking at other people and we're jealous of what they have. Okay? Boy, I got on a rant there. I'm sorry, guys. Last part. Almost done. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things. Look at how John ends this. So poetic. And there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Isn't that beautiful? What a way to end it, right? So John says, what I've said is true. This is reputable. John spent a tremendous amount of time dealing with some of the miracles of Jesus. He presented roughly about 10 miracles of Jesus. He talked about Jesus' life with his disciples. He talked about the message, the overarching message that Jesus taught. He talked about his death, and he talked about his resurrection. John also presented a lot of Old Testament prophecies written centuries before Jesus that Jesus fulfilled. And the reason why he mentions all of this is John wanted to persuade the reader, that's us, that God had personally engaged humanity, that God came down to earth looked at us in the eyes, told us how to live, died for our sins, and then rose again. That was the purpose of John's gospel. Notice this about John's gospel, though. Some of the other gospels mention that Jesus ascended back into heaven. In fact, the book of Matthew says that, that he ascended back into heaven. John didn't write that. Why? John chooses to leave the gospel open-ended. I love the hyperbole he uses, this kind of exaggeration, if you will, this poetic thing that he says at the end. He says, if you were to write down everything good that Jesus did, I, I suppose the world itself couldn't hold all the books of what he's done. 
what John wanted us to know was this, that the gospel is not the end of the story. The gospel is the beginning. That even if you're 95 years old and you hear this for the first time, you've just now begun to live. That's what John wanted to show us. The story of Jesus is just the launching pad. It's just the starting point that if we believe in him, we have life now and life forever, but that only comes through the gospel. So here's what the gospel teaches us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus, right? John does this very, very well. It talks about the fact, John talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is the God of the past, not just the God, the, the God of past creation, right? That if you read Genesis 1 and 2, that was the same God, Jesus, that he was the one that spoke everything into his existence, that there was nothing before him. We hear this in John. So we know that Jesus is the God of the past, but not just the God of creation. He's the God of our past. What that means is this. If you come in here today, regardless of the past mistakes you've made, regardless of the offenses that maybe you've done or have been done to you, regardless of your insecurities and shortcomings, Jesus will forgive the past of anyone who is humble enough to ask for it. What that means is this. Everyone else in this world may remember what you've done. They may remember what kind of person you were, and they may even hold it against you. But if we ask for God's forgiveness, the only thing in the universe that can do this for us, not only does he forgive it, he forgets it. It says in the Old Testament that he throws our sins into the deep sea. It says that he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. In the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, it says that we will all be judged by the actions that we've done. So what Jesus does when we ask for forgiveness is he has this super awesome eraser where he pulls out the book of our life and he takes care of that. So when we stand in front of Christ and he says, welcome, good and faithful servant, I'm going to be like, do you remember all the things I've done? And he's going to look at my book and say, I don't see anything here. Think about it. Think about it. Think about all the horrible things we've done that no one's even caught us on. Think about the horrible thoughts we've thought. Jesus says that when we hate people, it's the equivalent of murder. That when we've lusted, it's the equivalent of adultery. All these things that we've done in secrecy, in the darkest corners of our heart, if we will just ask for God's forgiveness, not even he will hold those things against us when we stand in front of him. That's amazing. So if you've come in here with a past, Jesus Christ is the God of the past. <laughs> the God that forgives the past. Not only the past, Jesus Christ is the God of the present. That right now, today, that Jesus can give us hope, wisdom, strength, and contentment right now. That's contingent though. What is it contingent on? It's if we will trust him, if we will pray to him, if we will read the word of God and follow the teachings, we will have contentment, hope, strength, and wisdom right now. Let me tell you something, guys. We're just going to be honest. I'm always, I, I try to always be honest with you guys. There are times when I can't pray. I'm mad at him. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at other things that are going on. I'm just not feeling it, and I can't bring myself to pray. Do you know what I do in those moments? I break out the Word of God. I break out the Word of God, and though I can't always get my, my mind frame in a place to pray, my heart's not right, 
I can pick up the word of God. I've read the book of Ruth like five times now. Great book of the Bible. Takes you 20 minutes, you can read the book of Ruth, if that long. Went back and I was just reading this story about this woman who was so faithful and how the lineage of Christ came from this woman eventually. And I'm reading about this, right? And so I go back and even when I'm not feeling it here and here, I can pick up the word of God and the word of God brings me into that place. It starts to move me into that. It starts to give me peace and comfort and hope. I get that from the word. Listen, if we will trust him now in the present, Jesus can save relationships. He can heal hearts. He can start to make us better, right? He can change us for the good. Is that easy? No, we talked about this last week. It's like when you're getting surgery to remove a a tumor. Is that easy? Is that fun? Is that just completely painless? Of course not. But it has to remove this thing so we can live. And so the result is better. When we go into the surgery, the book of Colossians says that our baptism is like a surgery where God goes in and cuts off the corrupt nature that we have. Is that always fun? No, but it makes makes life worth living. It makes things better once he heals us and restores us. So he's the God of the past. He's the God of the present. He's also the God of eternity. That Christ gives us an eternity. Listen, without depression, without fear, without pain. We no longer have to mourn the loss of loved ones or do funerals for children. We no longer have to cry over people who've passed away and didn't know the Lord. We no longer have to worry about war or famine. We don't have to deal with abuse. There will come a time in our eternity, the Bible says, where there will be no night. Why? There will also be no sun because the light comes from Jesus Christ. It radiates from him and we'll be with him forever, that we will live in peace with God. He can forgive our sins. He can give us contentment presently, regardless of what goes on around us. And he gives us the hope of a future that will be completely peaceful, that will be glorious and wonderful, and it will be with him forever. This is the gospel. This is the good news, that we can be restored and that we have hope, that we can be content and we can find peace, not just now, but forever. This is the good news. This is what John came to bring to us with his book of the Bible. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, here's where we are. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If you are in here and maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're new to this, maybe you're on the fence about this, wherever you may be, if there are things in your past that are bothering you, and if you're just looking for the truth, if you're looking for an answer, I just want to encourage you, even if you're not 100% sure if the God is up there, right? I just want to encourage you to keep looking. I want to encourage you. If you're in here and you do believe that Jesus exists and there are sins in your life or mistakes you've made or things that you're still struggling with, I encourage you to just give those things over to him. God, forgive me of this. Give me the strength and the wisdom to not do these things anymore. God, give me the strength to take the steps to where I don't keep falling back into this hole. If we will truly repent, God will forgive us of that. And even if the rest of the world holds it against you, he won't. 
If there are any of you who are struggling with things right now in the present, insecurities or anxieties or fears or hopelessness, if you're lacking contentment and joy, I tell you, if you will be dedicated to praying, reading the word of God, trusting him, he will give you contentment. He will alleviate your anxieties and your fears. He will help you. He will give you strength. Will it take time? Probably. But he will start to put you where he needs you to be and he will give you contentment now in this life. And for those of you who are just just longing, longing for something better than this world, I don't understand why anyone would want to live forever in this world. There is a place beyond this that if we will just hold on, there's a glorious eternity with Christ. There's a place of peace. There's a place of hope. There's a place of contentment for eternity. There's communion all the way around you. If you want to ask Christ to forgive you, you're welcome to take communion. It represents the body and blood of Jesus that was given so we could have our past remove, our present contentment, and our hope for eternity. There's people up here on the right and left if you need prayer for anything, men and women. Anything you need prayer for, just come up and have them pray for you. They'd love to pray with you. But please, don't be so foolish as to leave this room without being square with God. You can be square with God with a simple prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. We praise you, Lord. We give you, Father, all of our trust. We give you all of our hope. God, we put it all at your feet, Jesus, our past, our present, and our future. Lord, we thank you for everything you've done. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, be with us, God, for the rest of this week. And keep your hands on my brothers and sisters. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.